we get a lot of clients who needed residential because when they went to their outpatient session and they found their point or they did EMDR and some of those things started to open up, it was really big. And then they had to go home and raise kids or they had to go back to their job and, and do all these complex things. And sometimes it's too much to do all of that. And then therapy just becomes putting out fires. And so if you can really just come to a treatment center like Milestones where you have this safe contained space and things can come up and there's a safe container for that space to come up um, and you don't have to worry about raising your kids, you don't have to worry about keeping your job together. You can just be with it and hold space for it and allow it to move. That, that can really expedite the healing in the way that we were talking about earlier. In this week's episode, we're exploring the question, how are brain spotting and EMDR effective tools for treating trauma? We're excited to introduce you to two incredible clinicians from the Milestones team who are teaming up to help us explore these two different trauma treatments. Today's experts are Amanda Morrow and Ian Chapman. Amanda has worked in both outpatient and residential care, and as she shares in this episode, loves the residential process and what it can open up for clients. Ian began in the helping profession, serving the mental health community through research and found his way into therapy as a more direct way to impact change. So together, they're going to help us explore these different tools, brain spotting and EMDR, that can be intimidating from the outside looking in. This conversation helps make an unapproachable and maybe scary topic feel a little more accessible. So Christopher, what did you love about this episode? Well, first of all, I just love listening to Amanda and Ian talk about their work. Yeah. Um, they're just two really talented clinicians. Um, it was really nice to hear some of the specifics about EMDR and brain spotting too, and how these specific therapies can truly reduce the symptoms of trauma. And you know, for someone to have really high anxiety and even panic attacks and through doing EMDR and brain spotting for that to diminish over time is just really promising. Yeah. I loved um, how they offered kind of a distinction between the two because from the outside looking in, I often hear them mentioned in the same conversations a lot about mm -hmm. two different ways to, like you were saying, reduce the symptoms of anxiety or depression or other things that may be effects of trauma. And so hearing about the different situations that they might be right for mm -hmm. on the different experiences or uh, different narratives someone might be coming in with, I thought it was really, really helpful in conceptualizing how one of or two or both of these modalities could help. Yeah. Yeah. I also think... Um or just learning how the impacts of these modalities might be different in outpatient versus residential. Yeah, that was something I think comes up a lot in a lot of these interviews, but just understanding the context and the relationship that is afforded mm -hmm. in an inpatient setting was really interesting. Agreed. All right, well, we'll stick with us as we explore this question on treating trauma. Welcome to the Treating Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Christopher O'Reilly. Join us for a limited series of conversations with trauma experts and world-class clinicians from Milestones, a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience. Together, we'll explore how unresolved trauma from our past can disrupt and block us from being the person we want to be. Mm -hmm. 
Amanda and Ian, I'm so excited to be sitting down with the two of you. Um, before we kind of jump in, I'd love to hear just a little bit about how you got into the helping profession and specifically what it is about residential that really drew you in. So it's really a long story mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll spare you all the details, but, um, the short version is that, um, my undergrad degree was in philosophy mm-hmm. and, um, I did a lot of thinking and I thought about things like, how to live a good life, ethics, morals. Um, at the time, also suffering was very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know how that fit in, and I was I had a lot of questions about how suffering fits into the world. And um, so later, after undergrad, I spent some time in psychology because I felt like that was an interesting way to continue to explore those same kinds of questions that I was interested in. Yeah. I kind of looked at the field of therapy as a good combination of the two things that I was really interested in, yeah. both in my own personal journey and the things that that interested me um, about things like philosophy and the questions that philosophy asks. Um, and also because I had an interest in suffering, it just seemed appropriate for me to engage with that question in a very real and uh, interpersonal way, Yeah, sitting down in front of people and talking to them about their suffering. Um, and... Um, I'd also be dishonest if I didn't include the fact that therapy kind of is in my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that just plays a role, too. My father is a therapist, and my sister is also a therapist. Oh. And I didn't ever think that I would end up in that same role. But in my own way and in my own kind of journey and process, mm-hmm. it just felt right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was able to kind of see how meaningful and fulfilling that work is knowing them. Um, And I also saw how it fit into my own kind of life trajectory. And so I just Mm -hmm. kind of wound up there. Wow. And I love even like in knowing your dad, who's also on the podcast, um, (laughs) on this Treating Trauma podcast, Uh that I think it speaks to how different therapy can look. Mm -hmm. Like the way you do therapy is different than how your dad does therapy is different than how Amanda does therapy. And I think it's so important to have a diverse uh, skill set mm-hmm. and a diverse way that you approach people because people are all different. And so I think yeah. that's just so beautiful about the therapeutic process is that it is so unique to both the therapist and the client. Yes. Yeah. Um, Amanda, what about you? What kind of drew you into the therapeutic world? Well, when I was growing up, I wanted to be um, a kindergarten teacher or a zookeeper. I love that. <laughs> I know. Just very nurturing mm-hmm. roles, taking care of things. And uh, I also had in there that I didn't know that I wanted to be a counselor. And the thing that really solidified it was um, my dad had a job interview. We'd grown We had moved around a lot when I grew up. And he had a job interview and I really did not want him to get this job because we had lived at this particular place uh, three to four years and it was pretty much the longest I'd lived anywhere at, at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, we were in the car driving and my dad said to me, I didn't get the job. And I said, I, it's so weird the memories that we're able to hold on to, but I said, I'm really um, sad he didn't get the job, but I'm really glad we're not moving. And he looked at me and he goes, you should be a counselor someday mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, I it, it stuck with me like that my dad saw something in me that maybe I didn't really fully mm-hmm. realize in myself and that just kind of stayed and every moment I've been in has just felt like yeah this is just part of who I am and where I'm meant to be 
That's, that is interesting, the things that we remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about, is there something that either of you can talk about in regards to residential specifically? Because mm-hmm. it's one thing to talk about what you got into the helping profession, but mm-hmm. uh, residential's not for everyone. So I'm curious mm. about that. I I know why I love residential. I like the intensity of it mm-hmm. because it is intense. I like that it is timed, mm-hmm. uh, that you only get those people for a short amount of time mm-hmm. and that the results are so quickly visible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What we see in a week in a change in a person can sometimes take months mm-hmm. outside of there. So it's a quicker gift for me to be in the residential setting. Yeah, and to kind of bounce back, bounce off of that, um, there is kind of like this weight or gravitas to people who are coming to do this because it's very intensive. Mm-hmm. They, they do know they have that short amount of time. And so there's just kind of like the more there's more of a culture of work, like we're going to do this work, we're going to go in and we're yeah. going to support each other through it. So there's something really just sweet and um, beautiful about mm-hmm. that culture of residential. And then another part of it is, I mean, working as a team, you mm-hmm. know, like I think we at Milestones really lean on each other a lot um, in doing this really hard work. Um, and that kind of camaraderie and that support that we have with each other, I think is a little harder to have outside of residential. And I'm just having this thought, like it's actually a really good mirror for what we're trying to teach our clients, Mm -hmm. which is not to do things alone, to do things in community, Mm -hmm. to ask for help. And so in a residential setting, like you have that right at your fingertips as a part of the treatment team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think just from the outside looking in, that is I think the differentiator that I see about milestones is that y'all are a team Mm -hmm. first and foremost and that you're not no one is on an island doing it you're doing it together and and the clients feel that and then it's translated into the community Mm -hmm. the way that people relate to each other and all of that so I think it's really a cyclical thing well I think something also when we talk about residential people have maybe a specific view of what they think residential looks like and I think what kind of um, marks this apart as well is just the focus on trauma. And mm-hmm. so today we're obviously going to talk about trauma, but I'd love to hear from the two of you. What are some of the misconceptions that someone might come into residential care around connection to trauma? Uh, there are a lot of answers to this question. <laughs> That's yeah. good. A lot. That's good. Uh, and there are Ugh. two that come to my mind. So I, I'll speak to mine, and then Ian, I'd love to hear what you say. Mine, okay. The first one in mine, the first one that comes to mind for me around this is uh, is one that we face a lot when we see people who also struggle with what we would call an addiction or an attachment. Mm. Mm. And it is the idea of if I heal my trauma, I will henceforth be able to continue the behaviors that may have been dysfunctional or unhealthy to me Mm. in a more controlled and healthy way. And the unfortunate part is that's not true. So that that's one misconception that we often find. I think another one um, that I would love to talk about or just at least mention is that I want to be fixed by mm-hmm. the time that I'm done with you guys. So I want to I want to work on my trauma, heal my trauma, and be fixed and be this perfect human walking in this world when I leave your doors. And that's not the goal. That's not how it works. And 
you know, a lot, something I like to say a lot is if you choose this journey, this is a journey that you get to be on for the rest of your life. Mm. You, once you open your eyes to it, it, it's just a part of your, who you are now. And it can be in a really good and beautiful way. You said it's not the goal just to come in and fix it. What is the goal? I think um, what I would say the goal is decrease in symptoms that got them there, right? Mm. So that can look like depression, panic attacks, anxiety, trouble sleeping. Um, there's a lot of medical problems that coincide with mm -hmm. trauma, um, addictions and attachments that really flare their ugly head, relationship problems. Um, it, it runs the gamut of yeah. uh, really symptoms that will bring you into treat trauma. And, and then so, it's a lifelong journey to... Mm -hmm living with those to mm -hmm. address those to continue so a, like a good a good goal then would be like okay i don't have panic attacks when i leave anymore mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. when i feel anxiety in my body i have a different relationship to it and i know how to cope with it mm -hmm. i have skills to help myself deal with it and you know the same goes for depression and a lot of the other symptoms that follow along with this Wow. Yeah, I think of residential as we're helping you build a good foundation to build upon. You're going to walk out of here. I mean, you still have to build the, the house, but at least hopefully you've got a good foundation um, to continue your work after you leave Milestones. Maybe some blueprints on how to build the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is a metaphor that I've used a lot. We're like the ER of the behavioral health world. Mm. So people come into us in crisis, and our goal is to stabilize them so that they can then go back into the world and continue the work, but be stabilized enough to be able to do it, just like maybe an ER would do. That is a great, great metaphor for mm -hmm. the work that you all do in residential. Yeah. 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 One of the ways that I sometimes frame that very point is, you know, residential treatment is not coming to get your transmitter or trans. Oh shoot! <laughs> just, transmitter. Just start, what yeah. is the th what is the thing in a car? Trans Trans transmission. Transmission. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I what I often of tell people is, and to for that point is, residential treatment is not taking your car in and getting your transmission replaced, mm -hmm. and then you just drive back out and do what you did before. It's it's we're inviting you into a lifestyle change. You know, uh, you are doing the two degree shift that we talk about mm -hmm. a lot um, and things will look different after you leave here. You can't expect to just go home and do things exactly how you did before you got here because that's what got you to milestones in the first place. Yeah, I don't think people understand how interconnected everything is and mm -hmm. that, you know, when you start to heal and get better then everything starts to shift. That's right. You can't compartmentalize this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's something, too, that some people seem really overwhelmed by this idea when they come to understand what recovery from trauma looks like. But then, man, is it a gift, too, mm -hmm. when, when, you, when you really start to feel different and your life changes. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's like, what needs to change? It's just everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the running jokes that a lot of clients will come in, will, you know, say is, I came in with X diagnosis and I'm leaving with one through five diagnosis. You know, <laughs> I picked up a few along the journey. Uh -huh. And it is because you look at something and everything in you starts to change. Yeah. More things are revealed. It's mm -hmm. not that you're getting more things. <laughs> and another just misconception that I would name that's similar to this, but slightly different 
is I think sometimes we'll get clients who have this conception that therapy is something that happens to me. Yes. <laughs> Like, I, I just show up and, and I'm going to trust you professionals to do this to me and I'll be better by the end of it. But it, it, it has to be collaborative. It is, you know, we, we provide spaces and opportunities for you to do and try something different and to move through certain feelings that maybe you've been had a hard time with mm-hmm. or that you've been avoiding. Um, but it really requires just as much of your participation as ours. It's a collaborative process. Um, and that also speaks to what we were just talking about, that in doing so, that's how the shift occurs yeah. that allows you to walk out of treatment and live differently. You know? Hey there. If you're enjoying this podcast, I want to make sure that you know about Onsite's Living Centered podcast. Every Monday, we sit down for authentic conversations about the things that matter. Join me, Lindsay Nobles, and Hannah Warren as we get to chat with mental health experts, artists, and friends for practical and honest conversation about how to pursue a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or visit livingcenteredpodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Now, back to the interview. What do you, it's a very related question to what we're talking about. What do you see as some of the biggest barriers to stabilize in, mm. you know, uh, healing from trauma that clients experience? Some of the biggest barriers? <laughs> uh, self, I would name <laughs> as the number one. And it's, you know, we kind of have a, there is a, an assessment that we do with all the clients that come in and we ask that very question of what do you find your biggest barrier to be? And a lot of our clients have the inside of, it's just me. Mm. And that could be the defense mechanisms we have as far as like I self-sabotage myself or I overthink or I um, have really exiled the belief that I'm a capable human. And so I really fall into a lot of learned helplessness. Mm. Um, so, you know, that is one aspect of the barriers that we encounter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, just to kind of build onto that, I was thinking about this question and I think the simplest answer though, well, that's pretty simple. Self is pretty simple, but another way to say it is, um, one big barrier to, to healing trauma is keeping our pain in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. under the surface and disconnected and being alone in our pain. And so then the question becomes, why am I doing that? Because um, it is me that is doing that. But it's, I think it's a helpful question to explore with the client. What is, what is motivating you to keep this in the dark? And, you know, then you go to the next layer that's typically something like shame mm-hmm. or guilt. Mm-hmm. If I bring this to the light, you're going to see how bad or broken I am. Yeah. Or I have a lot of guilt. I should have done something differently. And so if I bring this to the light, you're going to see that my responsibility in this. Um, and then, you know, I, I come from a social work background, so I think of things often in a systemic way. Mm-hmm. And so then you get start to think about, well, what is the system that this person is in that leads them to be in so much shame or guilt around their trauma? And so you're thinking about, 
you know, who in your life was shaming you about this or telling you, you know, this was this happened 50 years ago. You need to get over this. Um, or, you know, this was your fault. How could you let this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can come from family. That can come from coworkers or friends or religious figures. We yeah. see that a lot. And so it's important to look at the system that enables that shame or guilt or whatever it is that is leading you to keep it in the dark. And, you know, also thinking more about systems, um, many people uh, live in a system that includes uh, things like racism or sexism, that mm-hmm. uh, these systems of oppression that say, you, this, is, this is not your trauma, or they minimize it, or they tell, it, yeah. tell you that you shouldn't see this as a trauma or gaslight you around your trauma. And so it's important to look at how the systems like that um, minimize and keep uh, lead people to keep it in the dark. Mm-hmm. Then you can also look at how there are systems that, um, uh, you know, to to bring it to the light is a very human and vulnerable act. Yeah. And uh, so some people come from certain systems that aren't interested in hum- your humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, your value is really just in your ability to produce or. Uh, what you can offer, um, your job, or whatever it may be. And so I'm a human doing. And so to be invited into a space where you're a human being can be really vulnerable. And so, you know, it gets it's interesting to get curious with clients. Why is that? Why is it mm-hmm. hard to be a human being? Um, and you can keep, probably keep going the layers and layers on yeah, top of that. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not one thing. There's no. so right. many There's things so to many speak things. into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ian, um, you mentioned that there's so much importance in partnering and being an active participant in mm-hmm. the therapeutic process as someone who's been experiencing the effects of trauma. So what are some of the modalities that you use mm-hmm. to help your clients like partner in that? So um, there are three main modalities that I like to use. Um, one is EMDR, mm-hmm. um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, another is brain spotting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another one that I think is really important to the culture of milestones and onsite in general is experiential work. And I think all three are really helpful in healing trauma in different ways. Yeah. So we've talked um, briefly about EMDR. So I'd love to, if it kind of bleeds over, like obviously hear more about it. But mm-hmm. we hear the word brain spotting. And I think um, I kind of joke that I'm. In the middle here, I've brought Christopher in to be the bridge between <laughs> the therapist and me. But as a novice, like the first time I heard brain spotting, I thought, what in the actual hell is that? <laughs> so will you give us an explanation and just kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and demystify yeah. what brain spotting is. The way that I see brain spotting and the way I often describe it to clients is um, there. There's a lot of research that shows the connection between the way that we position our eye gaze mm-hmm. and certain parts of our brain. And I think the most the easiest example that people can connect with is if I were to ask you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? You might look up at the ceiling and think, hmm, oh, <laughs> yeah, I had some eggs and bacon or whatever it was. Yeah. But people do that when they are recalling. Mm-hmm. They'll look up. And that's an example of... That's one of the ways that our body uh, helps itself access certain areas of our brain, mm. and so um, there, there's there are therapists and people who have taken that concept and kind of fleshed it out further. That certain gaze points helps us access certain emotions that maybe we have a hard time getting to, or mm. certain stored traumas. I mean, th- this is 
hopefully connect into maybe an episode on the uh, trauma in the brain. Yeah. But trauma is stored in our brain in different areas than other kinds of memory. So certain gaze points might help us access those traumas that we wouldn't be able to access just in normal recall. Yeah. Mm, that's so interesting because I even think I'm reflecting when you're talking, Ian, it's like I think even certain gazes help avoid emotion. Mm-hmm. Because I've even noticed, like, if someone's trying not to cry, they might look a certain direction, is, mm-hmm. and it almost helps them to sort of keep it in. Yes. So one would think that looking in other directions potentially could help them release. Yes. Yeah. And um, one of the things that we uh, learn in brain spotting is that there may be certain points that are connected with some painful memory. And we may, we'll, we'll help the client, we'll guide the client in finding where that spot is. Um, on the x-axis, on the y-axis, and even on like a z-axis of mm. how close or far the point is. Um, but there's also what's called resource spotting, where there may be points where when you uh, direct your gaze in this spot, it's easier for me to ground and stay regulated as I talk about a certain trauma. So yeah, it can the gaze can help in different areas. Wow. Super fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that something like this, just having the head knowledge of it, of like, oh, if I know where to look, to, I can access, like, that is probably still not doing it within the safety of the realm. So you would suggest that this isn't the safety of someone who has training in this and fully mm-hmm. understands and can come mm-hmm. alongside you and support that process, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You don't want to do this on your own. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, Ian, so how do you take, so you kind of describe what it is. How does it work practically? You know, mm-hmm. what is the goal of doing brain spotting with a client? Is it to help them to access their emotions? And if they do that consistently, does that, to what Amanda was saying earlier, maybe minimize some of their symptoms or, or, or you know, what they're struggling with? Yeah. Um, maybe the best way to answer that question is there's something in both EMDR and brain spotting that we will regularly assess with the client in the process, and it's what we call the SUD, which stands for the subjective unit of distress. Mm. And so if I'm talking to you about a particular trauma that you had maybe with uh, your father Mm -hmm. when you were five years old, Mm -hmm. um, I might ask you to bring that memory up. And I'm going to ask, when you really check in with your body right now, how distressing is it to you? From zero, not disturbing or neutral, to 10, the most disturbing you can imagine. And it's helpful to kind of anchor uh, that distress to a number. So like right now, I'm feeling a seven. It's really, it's pretty intense in my body right now. Mm-hmm. And so what can happen is if you find the gay spot um, that really activates and gets you connected with the emotion of that particular trauma, mm-hmm. um, as you hold that spot and talk about it or even sit with it, more of that energy gets to move in a way that is maybe not as easy to do when we're just going our regular daily life. Um, and what you know, you know has been found is if you really hold that spot and sit with it and slow down, connect to your emotions, connect to the physical sensations over time, mm-hmm. when you re- revisit that question, when you think about this memory, how distressing is it from zero to 10? Over time, the, that number starts to go down. And part of what helps it go down is that we are slowing down and allowing ourselves to feel something that maybe we've been avoiding for a long time, mm-hmm. whether it be through um, addictions, whether it be through attachments or relationships or work. Um, we often avoid these feelings because they're so painful. But if you are given a space 
with somebody sitting in front of you and you find where that spot is most emotional and you hold it, mm -hmm. talk about it, feel it, process it, over time that's, that, that energy starts to get released and the symptoms start to reduce in that way. So a big part of healing from trauma from what you're saying is, is really feeling it mm -hmm. and processing it. Mm -hmm. And that's why with residential, the support, I mean, everything yes. you all said earlier, it just, it kind of pulls it all together. So mm -hmm. you, people need a ton of support mm -hmm. or benefit from a lot of support when doing this kind of work. Right. I mean, we, we get a lot of clients who needed residential because when they went to their outpatient session, and they found their point or they did EMDR and some of those things started to open up, it was really big. And then they had to go home and raise kids or they had to go back to their job and, and do all these complex things. And sometimes it's too much to do all of that. And then therapy just becomes putting out fires. And so if yeah. you can really just come to a treatment center like Milestones where you have this safe contained space and things can come up and there's a safe container for that space to come up. Um, and you don't have to worry about raising your kids. You don't have to worry about keeping your job together. You can just be with it and hold space mm -hmm. for it and allow it to move. That that can really expedite the healing in the way that we were talking about earlier. Wow. Amanda, as a, as a trained person in brain spying yourself, anything to add to what Ian described for our listeners? <laughs> no, I think he described it really well. And one of the things that I love about um, brain spotting is it's a really gentle way to process the trauma uh, in a really like full mind and body experience uh, mm -hmm. to get what you need to get out. Um, it's, I just can't emphasize enough how gentle it can be on a client. Mm. Yeah, and one other thing I might add on brain spotting and... We may need to edit this out if it's not correct. <laughs> so tell me if I'm right, Amanda. Um, but EMDR, one of the things that you kind of need to do EMDR is you need to have a specific scene to anchor yourself to yeah. in your process. Yeah. And one thing that brain spotting can do is you don't necessarily need to have as specific an anchoring point. Mm. Um, you may be just like, I'm, I don't know, I am just have a lot of anger right now and I don't even know mm -hmm. what it's at. I don't know why I'm angry right now. And you can, okay, connect with that anger. Where is it in your body? We'll find the point where you get you feel more connected to your anger and then we just process that mm -hmm. way and sometimes you can get some clarity and release around something that is a little more vague than you're able to do with EMDR. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. EMDR really likes I love the term anchor because it is like a scene that you remember mm -hmm. or at least a sensation that's coming up. Mm -hmm. From other interviews, I remember when we have a traumatic experience, the way that it is stored in the brain, sometimes we don't always remember what it is, but our body remembers. Mm. And so I think even just hearing you say that, I imagine it being a really incredible unlocking tool when we can't name or pinpoint exactly what it is, but we know like, hey, my body's having a reaction to this. I know that this is having an outsized reaction to something that, you know, doesn't feel like that. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's an example that someone might after doing brain spotting, have an experience in like a decrease in, like you were saying, like decreasing your anger or what are some of the other things that might come out of that? Um, a some real outcome, sorry. Yeah. A real common one is flashbacks is sleep. Mm. Um, it's a real easy way to target 
when sleep becomes problematic to get in there and be able to decrease that. Um, anxiety symptoms, big, big emotions and feelings. Yeah. It's, an, it's another easy way just to settle that. And, you know, EMDR is really good in working with what we call a, a one specific trauma, right? So okay. if you're just working on a car wreck or if you're working on one specific instance of abuse, sometimes mm -hmm. what we would refer to as acute trauma. Yeah. EMDR is great for that. And where brain spotting can be really helpful is when you have more chronic trauma, things mm. that multiple experiences that have occurred over time. So like uh, one specific person who abused you over multiple periods of time, brain spotting is a much easier way to be able to treat that in a one sitting. Mm -hmm. Or um, other mm -hmm. kinds of traumas that are harder to encapsulate in a specific event, event like uh, absence or neglect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if you if I'm working with a client who had a parent who was not around, it's they don't usually have like here's this moment where my dad wasn't around. Mm -hmm. It was just this constant nebulous thing, yeah. and so sometimes it's easier to process that more nebulous kind of vague thing um, with the brain spotting. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it takes kind of two concepts that feel a little bit scary when someone's just diving into this work and maybe someone mentions to them, maybe you should look at EMDR or maybe you should look at brain spotting. I think the way that you described both of those things was really invitational and it felt like approachable even. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you. Thank you for kind of describing that. Would it, one other thing yeah, that you can that. edit out. <laughs> when you talk about outcomes. Yeah. Um, all, you know, EMDR and brain spotting are really trying to help uh, your nervous system mm -hmm. to regulate because one of the things neurologically that yeah. trauma does is that we're way more susceptible to go into that fight or flight or freeze place. And so when we do this trauma work, we're helping that part of our brain mm -hmm. heal so that our nervous system is not as reactive and um, the symptoms associated with uh, an overactive nervous system can start to reduce. What does a dysregulated nervous system look like? <laughs> so there is a term called a window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. And at the top of the window of tolerance is panic. And at the very bottom of the window of tolerance is overwhelm and just withdrawal. You know, what comes to mind is someone who just can't get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And... A dysregulated nervous system kind of operates in some of those more extremes. And what we want to do is get them in a window of tolerance that that is not living in those extremes, right? Mm. And so that's the theoretical view version of what I'm talking about. And in the day-to-day, -day, that would look like, more look like, a regulated system would be able to handle an emotion mm -hmm. and... Um, integrate it appropriately. So what I mean a little bit by that is if I have an interaction with Ian and I'm dysregulated, he may some, say something to me like, I'm so frustrated that you can't, that you weren't on time today. Mm. And my, if my dysregulated system would go into panic or get really defensive, reactive, and have a lot to say, a lot to say to that, just be very, very reactive. Yeah. In my regulated system, I could take in that feedback and say, 
you know what, you're right. I was totally late. It was disrespectful of your time. I'm so sorry, right? And so the dis- the regulated system is able to handle so much more of what life has around them. Mm. Like a, the ability to handle stress mm-hmm. without going offline, so to speak. Whether Absolutely. that's, like you said, for some people shut down or, or mm-hmm. get activated. Mm-hmm. Another piece of this, and this may be in the, episode around trauma in the brain is when we are activated, what can happen is if we've reached the point of fight or flight um, or beyond into freeze, uh, the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex that's responsible for meaning and reason and logic um, and connection to self and others doesn't work properly because we don't need that part of our brain to run or fight because we're just trying to survive. And so typically people who've experienced trauma, um, it's quick, it takes much less for them to get to that point where they're in fight or flight mode. And so they're pretty regularly and often having to navigate life without their prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And that's why we often feel like, I don't, you know, I'm not me. I don't know. Why can't I handle this? Why did I do that? Why did I run to this person again? Why did Mm. I go back to the, the drug? Because the part of you that that believes that I'm somebody else who doesn't do these things or has these values isn't online. Yeah, um, we're we're just in that survival place, and so by reducing the symptoms that we're talking about through any of these modalities, we're eas- more able to access the prefrontal cortex that allows us to be in our true self in that regulated place. Mm, To piggyback off of what Ian is saying, it can be very validating for a client to hear this because oftentimes they get into these mind frames of why didn't I run away? Why didn't I fight back? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why didn't I do X, Y, Z? And so to be able to say that's like those kinds of questions come from frontal cortex, which isn't running the show. If Mm -hmm. a bear came into this office right now, we're not going to sit here and try and navigate you the know, best route out of here. I wonder where that bear came from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder where the bear came from. What is it a brown black is or brown bear? <laughs> Why does it have patches? Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. We have a, a really, really unique survival system that's mm-hmm. set up to take over to make sure that we survive. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing is that when we've experienced that, we can kind of get stuck mm-hmm. in an over dysregulated nervous system and we're constantly in that state mm-hmm. um, because everything looks unsafe because mm-hmm. everything looks like a bear mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting yeah the two of you have just been this has been so good you kind of laid out the difference between emdr what kind of situation or what kind of experiences or what you're coming in would be helpful or brain spotting let's say i'm listening to this and i'm not going to a residential program or i'm just kind of diving into this work how do I? How would you suggest someone find a therapist that would help meet their needs? We had a long discussion about this earlier <laughs> uh, because um, resources can be limited sometimes. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the long and the short of it. Mm-hmm. And um, the field of trauma treatment, for as long as psychology and social work have been around, is really new yeah. in comparison and really developing. Uh, so, you know, just some some basics um talk to friends who are seeing therapists you Mm. know start there and what i would also say is it's good to 
just have someone to talk to to start off with, right? Yeah. Because you're just working on building a relationship. And it can take a really long time to find the good fit relationship. And we also grow out Mm. of our therapists sometimes. Mm. And I think the other thing that I would say is if you're wanting to do the deep level trauma work, you're not just going to talk to somebody. Right. It's not ever going to touch what needs to be touched. So making sure that the therapist you work with has some experience in modalities like IFS, brain spotting, EMDR, experiential, breath work, um, CRM, which is another one I don't think we've talked about. What does CRM stand for? CRM is comprehensive resource model. Hmm. um, And it's just another really safe way of accessing and processing trauma. Yeah. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, talks about how there are top-down and bottom-up approaches to Mm. treating trauma. And what he means by that is a top-down approach would be something like talk therapy where you, the therapist is engaging with your intellect. And sometimes by doing that, you start to see some shifts in the more emotional, deeper parts of ourselves. And bottom-up approaches are more starting with the emotions, starting with the body, starting somatically. And what can happen is there's shifts there, which lead to shifts in the way that we think. And um, what we found is, when it, especially when it comes to trauma, we really do need to do a lot of bottom-up yeah. approaches. And so EMDR, brain spotting experience, all those things that Amanda just named are bottom-up approaches. Um, and so that's not to say that you can't benefit from talk therapy because um, that, that is, has its value. Mm-hmm. But if you are really stuck in your trauma, it's helpful to start from the bottom. Yeah. Mm. What would you, so again, somebody listening to this and, and maybe, uh, you know, for the person listening, they're feeling clear they need to do something. What are your thoughts on doing their own sort of, uh, I don't want to say research, but just research, but just like reading books, like the body keeps the score and mm-hmm. things like that. Would you, encourage that or would you tell them that that's maybe a little bit down the road after getting in therapy what are your thoughts on things like that (laughs) well i have a couple of thoughts and i'd I'd love to hear yours ian but (laughs) i land in kind of a neutral place in that which is i think we need people for healing Mm -hmm. there is only so much we can do on our own um educating ourselves reading books is always always helpful but i think we we need at least one other person to engage Mm -hmm. with us on our healing journey. So um, I hope that made sense. It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's more or less what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, there is value in learning more about um, trauma in the brain and and what trauma is and how it affects different areas of our life. But ultimately, like we were talking about earlier, um, this stuff, as long as it's in the dark, and under the surface, it's going to continue to eat away at us. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the most important things about the healing process is bringing it to the light and have it be seen and held by supportive people around you, even if it's just one other therapist. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. then, then suddenly I'm not alone in this. And all these stories that I've been telling myself about this trauma and what it means about me and everything else, I'm not the only one having to navigate this in my own brain, which is uh, sometimes traumatized. (laughs) And so if I have somebody sitting in front of me who can look at my own thoughts and can mirror back Mm -hmm. how I've been talking to myself about this for years, 
suddenly it's like, oh, wait, maybe there is another way to see this. Yeah. Um, maybe it, it's when I look at it from her or his angle, um, there's a lot to learn there. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just speaks to what we say a lot at Onsite is that we're wounded in community and we heal in community. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so creating spaces that are safe um, mm-hmm. and we can risk and be vulnerable, I think, is so important. So mm-hmm. thank you, too, for your expertise. Um, I'm just so grateful for both of you and I'm grateful for how you showed up and brought a lot of clarity and simplicity and explanation and safety to a topic that feels heavy sometimes. Thank you. Thank you. If you or someone you love is struggling with the negative effects of unaddressed trauma, the safety, community, and expert care of the residential experience at Milestones may offer the individualized help and healing you need. Milestones is a -a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience, serving individuals adversely affected by symptoms of unaddressed trauma, including anxiety, depression, codependency, and PTSD. This innovative and integrative program offers a variable length of stay from 30 to 90 days, specific to individual needs. When life feels like too much, Milestones offers a refuge and a place of healing. Learn more at milestonesatonsite.com. Also, we'd love to help you explore the right option for you. You can connect with our admissions team for a confidential call at 1-800-341-7432 or email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. You deserve this.